Welcome to Julius Baer's True Connections podcast, where we hear from entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and financial experts on their views on today's world. In this edition, we speak to Robin Scott, co-founder and CEO of Apolitical, about her journey as an entrepreneur, the challenges other female entrepreneurs may face, and her take on the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Hi Robin, lovely to speak to you today. Robin, in these uncertain times, I thought it'd be relevant for us to kick off and maybe just think about and ask you about your views and thoughts right about what's happening globally just now with the coronavirus. The reason I ask that is obviously apolitical. One of the statements you make on your website is you're there to help government solve global challenges and I was just wondering how your organisation is coping just now and maybe some of your thoughts and observations on what you're seeing globally with the organisations you're working with. Thank you, and it's great to be here. And I should explain that here for me is my home in West London in Shepherd's Bush, where I have my 17-month-old baby, thankfully being looked after by my mother. But like many people, I'm dealing with that challenge as a result of the pandemic. And I have a team of 30 people suddenly working virtually and busier than we've ever been trying to support our members, our public service members on Apolitical to tackle the very multifaceted challenges of this pandemic. I mean, I think first and foremost, what's happening shows the absolute criticality of good leadership, principled leadership, informed leadership. The difference between good leaders and those who are behind the curve is the difference between lives and livelihoods protected and those that aren't. It's also thrown into the spotlight the lack of government sharing and cross-government sharing and coordination and the importance when that does work well, which is our whole raison d'etre at Apolitical. We created the platform to make it really easy for public servants anywhere in the world to find and share what's working around our increasingly common global challenges of which the coronavirus is kind of epitome right now. And what are you identifying as good practices at the moment, Robin, and how the world's connecting positively in relation to this challenge? I think it's very early still to comment on what is good and what's not because we're often lacking data at this stage in the response. But what we are seeing is around, for example, challenges like how to work remotely, how to manage the mental health challenges that remote teams are facing, etc. There are some good practices around that. So right now, I wouldn't want to say this is working, but I do think certainly those countries where there's been clear communication, consistent communication, that is almost always a positive. Countries that have embraced digitization earlier in governments are definitely finding it easier to cope with suddenly being thrown into a necessarily digital environment. But as to what really works, I think the jury's out for the time being. Okay. I think like all of us, we are finding our way at this moment in time. And I'm sure like myself and our organization, Julius Baer, we're trying to think ahead and what this will mean when we eventually come out of this challenge. And I think both private and non-profit organizations will reflect, it's a moment to reflect globally on what we would now do going forward in the future. And I'm sure there'll be many learnings coming out at the back of this. I'm sure you're having similar thoughts yourself as an organization. A hundred percent. And one of the most interesting features of this is how it's 
thrown into sharp relief the vulnerabilities and the fragilities in the systems that we've kind of taken for granted and maybe haven't strengthened and shored up as much as we should. So I think there will be lots of interesting legislative responses, policy responses. For example, things like paid sick leave and the gig economy and all these unanswered questions that new businesses have thrown up and they haven't really been tackled from a policy perspective and suddenly the coronavirus pandemic is forcing policymakers to tackle them. So there's that. In terms of the area our business is in, which is online learning, so we're a global peer-to-peer platform for government. Online learning has been thrown into the spotlight It is being adopted even by those people who in the past have maybe been reticent or reluctant. And there won't be a reversal from that, in my opinion. Once you have been forced to embrace something to the degree people are being forced to embrace it, you won't have quite a return to norm, even if normal physical interactions resume. So there's going to be a big shift there. And then Certainly in terms of internal workings of our organization, of your organization, I suspect that there will be some learnings during this time um, that we'll carry forward and incorporate into the businesses going forward. Certainly we're learning a lot around culture and collaboration and motivation and rapid communication at a super fast pace. Yeah, and I think the whole world's looking at that just now. Very interesting times. What I'd like to do now, Robin, is take you back in time. And as I was doing my research, I came across a title called 20 Chickens for a Saddle. And it references you as a youngster when you left New Zealand and your family moved to Botswana. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and what that experience taught you. Absolutely. So I should just say, I never intended to be a writer. I'm kind of a writer by accident. The way this book came about was, I was applying for an internship at the Financial Times and the person who made the introduction said you should, you have this unusual life growing up in Botswana, you should write a piece about that and if you write well, I'll try and get you into the FT. And I wrote it and I got this internship at the FT and then someone else read it and they said, oh, you should turn that into a book. And I was 20, 25, I think at the time. I really didn't feel like, you know, had enough life experience to write a memoir, but I thought, why not give it a shot? I was homeschooled, and one of the consequences of being homeschooled is that you kind of learn to try stuff and learn by doing and by failure. So I gave a shot at writing this book, and I got very lucky. It was published widely, best-selling in a couple of places, and it gave me some capital to start my first businesses. But just going back to the story itself, I left New Zealand, I was born in England, but left New Zealand at six where we'd gone after England with my parents, my brother and sister to move to basically the middle of nowhere in Botswana where my father worked as a flying doctor and my mother initially decided to homeschool us because there weren't any schools nearby that she liked. But after a couple of weeks trying to homeschool a a seven-year-old, a six-year-old, and a four-year-old. She decided that was too challenging. So she adopted this extraordinarily laissez-faire approach to our schooling where we were steeped in lots of intellectual richness, lots of books. She'd read to us a lot, and we were encouraged to pursue obsessions, so whether it was growing crystal gardens or my sister learned the Latin names for all the trees and the bush around us. My brother was obsessed with deconstructing and reconstructing motorbikes and equipment and radios. 
So we had this highly unstructured schooling until we were around, in my case, 15 when I went to school. And in the course of that, we became pretty entrepreneurial. So the title of the book, 20 Chickens for a Saddle, relates to when I was about nine and I desperately, I was a fanatical horse rider and I desperately wanted a saddle for my birthday. And my parents said, well, you can have a saddle, but you have to contribute to it. I said, fine, you know, I could do pocket money. And they said, no, you have to start a business to earn the money to contribute to it. So I had the idea of rescuing battery chickens and who were about to be slaughtered and nursing them back to health and selling the eggs, which was the origin of the title of the book. So that was my rather extraordinary childhood. And of course, it's been very interesting following the news now because so many people are being forced to homeschool and are so panicky about it. I've had numerous conversations with friends saying, just don't worry, my parents did almost nothing with all of us and we all turned out all right. It's funny, the number of people I speak to who talk about entrepreneurs and they relate it way back to their childhood to similar activities that you have referenced and it is really interesting when we talk about what's going on today. I just spoke to a colleague and they have a young child with them at home as well. And I was asking how it is and they said, absolutely fantastic. And I think it's some of those interactions, parents with their children, teaching new ways and teaching some of the basics that actually create some of that entrepreneurial spirit that we talk so much about today. And possibly we've gone too far towards the academic agenda rather than actually learning, testing, failing and being encouraged by others around about you, namely your parents and your childhood. Yeah, and I do think it's a question of like learning how to learn and learning to love learning versus what you learn. One example I sometimes give was I ended up loving maths. I did bioinformatics and computational biology as an undergrad, but I had the super sketchy education beforehand in maths. However, I had a few verticals of knowledge and one came from my father, who was a frustrated doctor. He was living and working in this extraordinarily hard time, which was the peak of the AIDS epidemic in Botswana, which was the most severe in the world for a time. Before the drugs came out, he would go to his remote clinics all around the bush in Botswana and basically be sending people home to die every day because there was no treatment. So it was enormously stressful and a weight that the whole family carried. And he had one of his relief valves was systems for relief. So he never really gambled, but he was obsessed with finding systems to beat the house. So I used to sit with him late at night in our house, got to imagine like completely wild bush felt. And he had this plastic roulette wheel and sheets and sheets of scratched out formula and systems. And I would play around with those with him. So when I went to school, I had big gaps in my math ability, but my probability knowledge was university level. And I caught up all the rest because I think I'd had the inspiration and the intellectual exercise. And it didn't matter that I didn't have the content on a whole lot of things. It's funny because my own kids who are finishing university and what they often say to me is, Dad, why was I never taught these practical things at school or at university? The basic, even the simple things like a mortgage and all these simple things, they sort of get neglected in education. It becomes overly academical over the practical. And just on the back of that, Robin, so really interesting childhood. And then you had a really fantastic academic education. When you came out of academia, what led you to encourage you to move into that business world? And obviously, initially, you set up One Leap, is that correct? Yeah, so back to my childhood, I'd always been interested in figuring out creative ways to solve problems that matter. 
which took me to entrepreneurship because essentially start with no resources and a meaningful problem that you don't know how to solve and persuade people to give you resources you don't have to solve a problem you don't know how to solve because that problem so merits a solution. And for me, that act of setting up a vision, galvanizing others behind it, and figuring out tough problems is just incredibly exciting. And using technology as the medium is extremely exciting because you have so much leverage and so much scope for 10xing and orders of magnitude leaps in your solution. So those kind of principles have always informed my interest in entrepreneurship. I did science as an undergraduate, but then I was very lucky. I got a Gates scholarship to Cambridge to do a degree between Cambridge in the UK and MIT on commercializing science and technology for, in my case, looking at sort of societal benefit. And then, as I mentioned, I, I got some funds from writing this book and was just keen to start something up quickly. I started One Leap, which is an innovation company. It does innovation and executive education now. I'm no longer directly involved in the business. And then I also, so that's a for-profit company, but I also started a not-for-profit in Southern Africa, which taught income generation skills to young and excluded people. And in particular, evolved to teach coding to these excluded groups, most notable amongst them, maximum security prisoners. So we ran coding programs in prisons, which was an incredible experience with a whole lot of surprising life lessons that turned a lot of one's assumptions on their head. And it must have been unbelievably rewarding, and then that's led you into setting up Apolitical a few years ago. Tell me that story, and, and tell me how you've built the team round about you, because often when I speak to entrepreneurs, that are building their business, creating that culture and the right people around about them is critical. So maybe if you can share a little bit of that story and where you've got to today. Certainly. So the threads that led me to apolitical, one was around the ride from the prison work. When you spend time in prison, we were doing fantastically innovative work. We were the second organization in the world after one in California to teach coding in prison. And we had some great results. But basically, when you're working in prisons, you realize you're working so downstream of problems because most people who end up there have in some way been let down by policy, either education policy or health policy or early childhood. So even if you're doing great work, you're dealing with the consequences rather than the causes. So I wanted to work upstream of these problems. And government, for all its sometimes sclerotic slowness, is so high leverage. You, know, you help one person do something differently. That person might be managing budgets that affect the lives of millions of people. So super high leverage. So that was one thread. And then the other was one of the lessons I learned building One Leap, which evolved quite a bit over time. So we initially had an impact part to the model, but the impact aspect of it wasn't fundamental to the business model. And as we responded to the market and learnings as all companies do and pivoted a bit, that impact aspect got sidelined. And my takeaway from that was I wanted the next business I built to have impact core to the business model. So the more successful you were as a business, the more successful you were in creating positive impact in the world. You weren't handling a constant trade-off. So those two threads really brought me to looking at government and the opportunity for learning and sharing in government, drawing on the precedence of other platforms. 
you have a sector that manages directly controls about 40% of global GDP, north of $30 trillion a year, and yet people are in government dealing with 21st century problems but working off a 20th century, sometimes a 19th century operating system. So the scope to bring best practice from other sectors and affect change was just incredibly exciting. And I teamed up with a former U.S. government public servant and also an entrepreneur to found it. In terms of building the team, a few things have been really important for us. We have selected for very mission-driven people. We have a high standard in terms of ability for the people who join the team. It's a very rigorous environment. But we will not hire the most brilliant person if they don't really care about the problem we're solving. Because we've just found under the constraints and stresses and challenges of a startup, that unified sense of purpose is so powerful in the team. So we're really disciplined about that. We didn't set out for it to be this way, but quite unusually, we're two female co-founders creating a tech company. And it's turned out that our entire executive team is women still. Um, That will probably change over time, but that's created some interesting opportunities in the company because, as you'll know, hiring technical people is incredibly hard for any company. And yet we've increasingly started to attract brilliant engineers who said they just like tired of these macho bro environments and like the idea of a company with female leadership. We've also thought very carefully about our investors. We have investors looking for market rate returns because we're dealing with a multi-billion dollar business opportunity. But all our investors are mission driven too and care about the impact we will have in the world. So we've never felt pushed into a position that made us feel awkward internally. So I really think that alignment of your mission amongst your staff, mission amongst your investors, And then we've also adopted a lot of transparency towards our users because we're building a tech company in government in a time of tech clash. So to maintain trust with those circumstances, you have to earn that trust and you have to be open and consistent and super user-centric in a persistent way. And have you found challenges with the board being female-driven, either in your recruitment drive, but you're suggesting that's possibly been a positive for you, or indeed with your interactions and possibly government, which is still probably male-orientated globally to a greater extent? I think the biggest challenges have been around investment because whether conscious or unconscious, it's a very real problem, the prejudice against women. I mean, we less so now that we've built a successful business, which is solving what's increasingly a very obvious and important problem. But in the beginning, we were asked all the time, why don't you two just make it a non-profit or are you trading off return? You know, there's often the assumption that just because you're women, you must be do-gooders who can't build a successful business. So all that nonsense. I think one of the jobs of an entrepreneur is to make the most of the resources you have. And I see the fact of being two women co-founders as a resource. So flipping it to the positive, we found that actually being women helped us a lot in government because government's worrying a lot about equality and they're worrying a lot about trust. And I think if we'd been two young guys in hoodies in a basement building a company that relied on government users sharing their data, we would not have as quickly earned the trust of government as we did. I think the fact that we were two women made our potential customers trust us more. So the same, I suppose, bias that causes investors to 
underestimate women worked in our favor in this case. A really interesting dynamic. And what you're saying about the piece on apolitical and working with governments from a 20th century platform and making it a 21st century platform, that links very much to your mission around about making government smarter. Do you think that gap is closing and possibly current events may accelerate that? Is that your view? I think current events certainly will because they're forcing a reckoning with these old systems that don't that are no longer fit for purpose. I think also the generational aspect of change can't be underestimated. I mean, we're talking March 2020. 2020 is the year the oldest of the millennial generation turned 40. So these people, people who are digital and native networks, are now in positions of power in government. And they are looking at the systems that government works of and saying kind of WTF, this is nonsense, this is crazy. So I think there's this really interesting moment where you're seeing the beginnings of a sea change to modernization. There's also obviously a huge increase in the power of big urban centers driven by urbanization. And a lot of the way in which city governments work, proximity to the people they're serving, and ability to act fast and learn fast is basically more compatible with the systems. I think a lot of the change in government has been pioneered at city level, but it will eventually move up the government stack into national government. If we can move on a little bit. Now, one of the agenda items before the pandemic hit the world was very much the ESG agenda. And when at Julius Bear, we, we are heavily involved in that. I believe we as a wealth manager globally are leading the way in many aspects. And when I'm speaking about ESG, one of the things I say as a wealth manager that's important to us is the governance element, how we utilize our governance around about the environment and sustainability aspects of ESG. There was an article in the FT which you've commented on, which you said about adding in democracy to ESG. And I was just curious to explore further what you actually meant by adding democracy to ESG. Yeah, I mean, this is that elegant phrasing was not mine, but I do think that businesses and society have been benefiting from what I call a democracy dividend, right? We've all been the beneficiaries of the system that has allowed markets to flourish, lifted people out of poverty, enforced the rule of law. And yet, at the same time, a lot of the institutions that have done especially well out of it, namely businesses and large corporations, have been bad actors in many cases and actually undermining the systems of democracy. I mean, if you look at the trajectory of talent from the 1950s through to today, going into government, whether as an elected official or non-elected bureaucrat, that used to be a prestigious career. And that's been eroded almost every year. So talent has been drained away from government. Funds have been drained away from government. And I'm not an advocate of big government per se, but I'm an advocate of the appropriate size of government. And I think there's been a steady just neglect of strong institutions, which now under these unprecedented pressures are collapsing and being put in jeopardy. And we need all sectors to face up to that fact and start to, in the same way that businesses have said, all right, we are implicated in some way in climate change. Businesses have got to say we are implicated in some way in the health or the illness or sickness of our democracy. And we have power to affect change. So 
So taking ownership around the importance of democratic institutions is, I think, really important for those people who control wealth and run businesses. Thank you. And one of the things you said at outset, Robin, was the love of learning. And it's something I really enjoy. I think everyone should actively try to be learning new skills on a regular and ongoing basis. And I read an article that you referenced, which is called 30 Second Habit with Lifelong Impact. And I read it and I was fascinated by it. And I thought, wow, that's changed my perspective on when I'm listening. And I wondered if you could just share with those listening today what you meant by that and the lessons you've taken from it, the 30-second habit with lifelong impact. For sure. So I'll admit to being a bit of a productivity and effectiveness nerd. I'm obsessed with doing as much with a short and precious life as possible. So this was one of my absolute favorite insights, not mine, but from a very wise person who attributed a lot of his success to a habit which was at the end of every significant interaction across his day. So it might have been a meeting, a call, a word with a colleague. He would distill the takeaways from that interaction immediately afterwards. And he would do so within the constraints of a 30-second window to distill them. And that had the powerful effect of both reducing the burden to a low enough level that you can always find 30 seconds, so you do it. It's a habit you adhere to. But also forcing distillation on key takeaways from a particular interaction, which builds a really, I think, important reflective muscle. Often just multitask and slip from one question to the next and one screen or one tab to the next, we don't build. So I found that an incredibly helpful technique. And that piece went amazingly viral and it resulted in, I know of at least two apps that were built, 30 second apps to allow you to take notes within 30 seconds. I just myself personally found it fascinating and it actually made sort of thought-provoking thinking, yeah, I listen, but am I really hearing what's being said? And just actually that task and exercise to physically write it down makes such a difference on your reflections on the day. Robin, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. I could speak to you for so much longer, but we're going to have to close things there. All that remains for me to say is that I hope you and your family stay fit and healthy over the coming weeks and safe, and same for your organization. And I look very much to meeting you in person in the not-too-distant future. Thank you very much for sharing your insights and your background and experiences today, Robin. Much appreciated. Thank you, and sending all your kind wishes back to you and your family and your organisation. That's all for this edition of Julius Baer's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening, and please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at juliusbear.com. Mm-hmm.